thanks to our sound team today. We really had to scramble with some tough challenges this week in the booth. So that's off to those guys back there. They're doing a great job. Uh, since it is Father's Day, I wanted to give you a little insight into the home I grew up in with my pops. Uh, this is a 70s and 80s home. And let's say it's a Saturday lunchtime and we're all gathered at the table. And mom was very proficient in providing the three great sandwiches of the 80s. You had peanut butter and jelly, that still stands up, right? You had the butter fried grilled cheese, that's still around. Uh, but what's fallen on hard times was actually the king in my house, which was the bologna. Right. I was raised on bologna. I'm told you're not supposed to eat it anymore. But man, we did. We would fry it. We would slap it with cheese. We would put it on crackers or bread. If I ever wanted to experience fine dining, I would pronounce it bologna because it's spelled funny. We had bologna everywhere. I got really desperate. I could pull out the little red rind on the edge and I could scrape out So mom grew me up eating bologna, kept me provided, but my father taught me about something else. My father taught me about bologna, all right? Now bologna is something different. What you have to understand, in my house growing up, there was no cussing. Dirty words were not allowed, so my father became proficient in what you might call secondary dirty words, the cousins of the true dirty, dirty words. So anytime he was frustrated, and if I tried to float any deception across the bow of his ship, he would shoot it down with this phrase, baloney. I would say, Mom, my tummy hurts. I don't think I can go to church today. And Dad would pop around the corner and say, that's baloney. I'd be busted. I might say, Dad, this D in French class is my best effort. And then you would say, Bologna. You were stringing out for emphasis. Or I would say, I was going to cut the grass myself, but I thought my brother needed the exercise. So I saved it for him. He would say, That's a whole load of Bologna. Anything, falsehoods, Nonsense, lies, deceit, foolishness. He would call them all out with this phrase. And I thought about this this week as I was reading through Romans chapter 2. Because Paul, inspired by God, is doing something very similar. Remember where we've been in our study of Romans. In chapter 1, as one author said, we were exposed by our open depravity. Paul concentrated on the deeds and acts that we did that were very brazen. That's what chapter 1 exposed in our heart. But chapter 2 is out for something different. The less obvious things that we might do to rebel against God. Today in the text, God looks at your insincerities, your false piety, your duplicity double dealings. He looks at all of that and God cries that's baloney. You're not getting away with anything under the shining light of God's righteousness. But like a good father, he doesn't leave us there. He's going to end this section with a word of hope. But first we have to be called out a little bit in the areas where we are double-minded. He does that for us in the text today. So we're going to begin here in Romans 2, verse 12. But before we do, remember where we've been in the chapter. Verse 11, Paul had just declared that when it comes to evil, God shows no partiality. All right? All will be judged by God for the evil, self-seeking, God-offending ways. And that still speaks to us here today in our church. No matter what your background, no matter what your station in life, 
No matter who you know or who your daddy is, God will judge your evil. Now, as Paul is writing this, he's very aware of his context, which is a little different than our context today. Let me explain it to you. He knows that Paul, as a Jewish man, his Jewish peers are going to hear him preach and hear him teach. And they're going to be thinking of two types of people. They're going to be thinking about themselves, the Jewish ethnic people, and then everybody else is in another category called the Gentiles. So his original hearers will be thinking along those two lines. And here's how they might receive that. Just imagine in your mind Paul teaching what we're about to read together. And as Paul says, God is going to judge everyone impartially. You all need to repent because the judgment is coming for everyone. The Jews would listen to this very patiently. And they might even clap. Yes, I agree. And they might even say, bravo. Amen. But Paul, they have a British accent in my mind. Paul. I don't know why. They might say, Paul, what about the law? You see, God can't be impartial because he's given us the law. The prophet came to us. Surely that gives us some advantage when it comes to salvation. Maybe an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card, if you're a monopoly fan. Paul knew that's how his hearers would receive this. And so he's structuring this chapter to particularly aim at this type of listening. So as we read verse 12 here, we have to understand that God is trying to expose this type of thinking. And still in our church today, we might call it sanctimony. Sanctimony means acting as if you're morally superior to other people. The Jews were tempted to think they were morally superior because they were God's chosen people. They had the law of God. God has none of it. In this text. Now look at verse 12. Again, try to remember and receive it as a first century Jew might receive it here. He's writing concerning the Jewish people, but he's got us in mind too. Because the same principle applies to us. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So a first century Jew might ask, well, who sins without the law? It's the Gentiles. Of course they deserve your wrath. They don't have the law. But Paul's not finished. As the verse keeps going, he says, And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, wait a minute. Don't you say, under the law? Well, that's us. How can we be judged the same way the Gentiles can be judged? How in the world do you explain that? Well, verse 13, he explains it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not the hearers or the keepers or the havers of the law who are righteous before God. That's the key indictment statement. Your sanctimonious pretentiousness about having the law is in vain. Just hearing and having the law does not make you righteous before God. That means you're still unrighteous. That's Paul's point to his hearers. You'll be forever condemned in judgment unless you turn. So hopefully you get the point here. Having the law does not make the Jews morally superior to the Gentiles. Now in verse 14, look at this. Paul is going to elaborate further by sharing that the Gentiles have a different kind of law that levels the playing field. Alright, so if a Jew is sitting here thinking, we've got the law, we're morally superior than you, Paul is going to say, wait a minute, the Gentiles have a law too. Just a different kind of law. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's Moses' law, by nature, if they do what the law requires, that's the moral commandments, they are law to themselves even though they don't have Moses' law. Now that can be confusing, let's explain it. Paul is introducing a concept here a law to themselves. This is normally called natural law. What is natural law? Well, natural law is an eternal moral law revealed to all people.
humanity in our hearts through human nature. Right? Everybody has this. Part of being made in the image of God means that we have a broken sense of morality, but yet we know what is good. Deep down, we have an understanding of good. That's why you can go to any culture in the world and murder is considered bad. You don't have to have the Old Testament to know that. Something inside of us, which we call the natural law, reveals to us what is wrong and what is right. That's how Paul can say, they have a law too. You have your law, they have a law, everybody's going to be judged without uh, impartiality. Verse 15, the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their heart, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse him. Paul is saying, you know that the Gentiles have a law, but look at them. Sometimes they will do what is right, and their conscience will say, yeah, I did a good thing. If you tell the truth, you're going to feel good about telling the truth. That's proof that they have a natural law. Or if they do something evil, if they tell a lie, they might feel guilty about it. They've never heard of the Old Testament. They've never been introduced to God. But still, when they tell a lie, they, in their conscience, they feel guilty. And so Paul says, there's no impartiality here. You all have the law, but verse 16 is very key. He says, on that day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The circles back to verse 12 now. What he's saying here is though the Jews have a law, the law of Moses, the Gentiles have a law, the natural law, everybody's hearts are going to be judged by a perfect God. And everybody has failed God. All of the moments where your conscience says, ah, I shouldn't have done that. That moment is going to be judged by God. It's an offense. Paul says you'll be judged by Jesus Christ himself. So let's pull back now for a moment. Because this text can be really hard to be talking to the Jews a lot and bringing up Gentiles. Let's just pull back and see if we can read it here. I think it's helpful to ask this question as you read through Romans 2. If you really want to pursue God, you can ask a question like this. What sanctimony is present in your life? What sanctimony is present in your life? What I mean is, where do you think you are morally superior to others because of something you have done or because of something you have in your life? All right, that's a great question to ask yourself. What sanctimony is present in your life? The Jews had the law, and they felt that that made them morally superior, acceptable to God. So what's your law? What's going on in your life? as a good thing that you're tempted to think, you know what? God's going to count this in my favor. When he looks at me and judges me, this is what counts the most. The problem with this type of evaluation is we have to look at the good things God has given us, right? The, the law was good for the Jews. It was a good thing. We have to look at the own, uh, other good things in our lives. Fathers, Maybe you spend time homeschooling or teaching your children and you're tempted to think, I'm pretty good. Look at this time that I'm sacrificing for my kids. Surely on the last day, that earns me a check mark from God. See how easy that is to think like that? Maybe you've been doing good ministry here in Southeast Raleigh. Is that your law? Have you educated yourself on some really important issues, emotional health or political issues? Is that becoming your law? Something good that you're holding up to God and saying, by this, you will surely save me. What about standing really strong on social media for truth? Or you stand strong on social media for justice? These are good things, but they will not save you. We have to stay away from this idea that we think we are so much better than others that God can't help but credit that in our 
favor that comes to salvation. Once again, we must remember what Paul says in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, For all sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by going to Southeast Raleigh and doing ministry. No, that's not how we are justified. By keeping the law? No, that's not how we are justified. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the heart of the matter. What are you trusting in your need for grace from God or your own works? Your salvation can stand only squarely on the shoulders of Christ's finished work on your behalf. Read an article this week. Author Trevor Wax gives us a couple helpful questions to ask yourself about your own sanctimony, your own temptation to slip into moralism. Listen to what he said. First question. Check your heart whenever you see someone else benefiting from God's grace, okay? If you ever see someone benefiting from God's grace, that's a good time to check yourself and see if you're a sanctimonious moralist. Let's say your acquaintance gets a promotion, right? How did your heart respond to this news? By sinking into jealousy rather than leaping for joy? Did you think, why did God do that for her? And not me. See how that works? Am I not deserving? This stands in opposition to grace. You must repent. Ask God to change your heart so that you rejoice in the grace of God for others. The key sign that you might actually be trusting in your own good work for salvation. Here's another time. Much more personal, perhaps. Think about how you react to suffering and pain. What type of questions come up when you go through suffering and pain? How do you view God when you have a terrible trial? Moralists, sanctimonial, immediately think, what have I done to deserve this? Doesn't God see all the good that I have done? Right? See, we tend to think of God as some cosmic employer. Right? If we do enough good stuff, He'll reward us. But when God doesn't meet these expectations, you become angry. Eventually, your disillusionment leads to despair. You think that all your efforts must be useless. So, here's the rub. It could be your own sanctimonious moralism that's leading to your deepest despair. Your own attempts to convince yourself of how good you are are actually leading you to your darkest moments. You're disillusioned about God because you're quite happy with your own moral accomplishments and you're wondering, why isn't God happy as well? You expect Him to reciprocate to you at the final judgment. And this type of thinking will destroy you. Paul's word to you today is your salvation rests in Jesus alone. The Jews felt that the law gave them God's approval and an advantage. Let's not fall into the same trap today. Your social viewpoint, your lifestyle habits, they're all good things, but they give you no salvific advantage before a holy God. So that sanctimony is full. The gospel says our only advantage is the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Yes. This is where we invite everyone to come and trust in Jesus alone. Every other thing is just a crutch that will bend when you put too much weight on it. You must trust in Jesus' sacrifice alone. Fathers, the best gift you can give your family is to be that type of truster. You're the guy who is saying to your family, all the good stuff that I do does not make me worthy of salvation. All right? You need to know I am unworthy. My only worthiness comes from what Jesus has done for me. If you can nail that, you've been a successful father. So let's push towards that. Something else comes up in the text today. 
God is only not only exposing our sanctimony, the idea that we think we're better than others morally deep down, but he's also exposing our hypocrisy. And he says, your hypocrisy is blasphemy. What do we mean by hypocrisy? Well, that's a little more common than sanctimony. It's when we claim to have certain moral standards, but our behavior does not conform to them, right? It's the older brother of sanctimony. Look at verse 17. I'll begin an argument here. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, he's reminding of the Jews of all the good things they have, right? They're able to know God's will through the Old Testament. They're able to see what is excellent. They're able to gain moral instruction from the law. Their advantages are a good thing. It's good to be chosen by God the way the Jews were. He begins to talk about this in the next chapter, in chapter 3. But these benefits are supposed to overflow and help the Gentiles. You see, God chose the Jews in a special way that he didn't choose anyone else to be a fountain point of blessings. The problem that Paul sees is the Gentiles are not being blessed by the Jews because they are being hypocrites. They are teaching something, but not following through themselves. Verse 19, he talks about the ministry to the Gentiles. He says, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So the Gentiles are the ones in verse 19 who are blind, full of darkness, foolish, children. This was to be the ministry of the Jews. Through the covenant, the law and the prophets, they could declare the glory of God to all nations, to the Gentiles. Make a big deal of him so that everyone would come to him. But they failed to do so. Instead, their own immorality and idolatry made God look like a phony. The Gentiles would say, if he's so good, how come you're not doing what he's asked us to do? Right? Now Paul is going to give us four rhetorical questions here, starting in verse 21. To turn the table on any self-righteousness that the Jews had, and also turn the table on our own temptation to self-righteousness. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That'll be the general heading for the next three questions. See how he's getting at hypocrisy here? You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, do you violate the very law that you instruct others to follow? This rings very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. If you remember the start of that chapter, we hear this in Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to the crowd and disciples, and he says, You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish teachers, they sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they have the law of Moses. So, do and observe whatever they tell you, but don't do the works that they do. That's what Jesus said. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. That's hypocrisy. God wants you to run from it today. Now, the next three questions here flesh out the hypocrisy of the Jews, taken from the Ten Commandments. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He's not saying that every Jew does this. He says these are representative of the type of hypocrisy we find among the Jewish people, and Paul's heart is broken. He does not want to see this. It's destructive for the Jews and it's destructive for the Gentiles. The first two things are straightforward enough. Some leaders were apparently stealing. Some were in sexual immorality. Some apparently were taking idols from pagan temples and selling them to make money. 
Verse 23 makes the whole main point clear. If you can zone in on verse 23. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. That's the blasphemy part, right? You have the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Hypocrisy is reigning among God's people. Paul is calling it out. He ends this section by citing a prophet from Isaiah 52, 5, and verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The absolute reverse has happened. God had ordained that the Jews teach the nations about God. And instead, they were blaspheming God with their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is seen to be blasphemy. Now again, this is heavy stuff. It's hard to understand sometimes where Paul is coming from. So let's pull back from the text, catch our breath, and try to look at hypocrisy in our own lives. As a writer, a uh, preacher named Steve Brown, as I was reading this text, I was reminded of a joke he once told. He talked about a man who was going to the hospital with a pretty serious operation, and when he was on the doctor's table, he had one of those near-death experiences, right? So this man actually sees God, and he said, God, well, I've got you. Can you tell me, am I going to survive this surgery? And God says to the man, sure, it's going to be all right. In fact, you're going to live another 50 years. So what happens? The man wakes up. He indeed did survive the surgery. He's elated because now he knows he's going to live for 50 more years. He looks around the hospital and he says, well, I'm here. Perhaps I can improve myself. I've got a long time with this body. So he scheduled an operation for a tummy tuck. While he's in there also, a little bit of fat around the chin can be taken away in the hospital while he's there. He actually hires a guy to come in and dye his gray hair black. There's no shame in that, by the way. At the end of all of this, he leaves the hospital feeling like a new man, confident, and sure enough, he steps out into the street and smacked in the street by a truck. He's ran over and he dies instantly. So he goes to heaven and he sees God and he says, what's up, God? I thought you told me I was going to live for 50 more years. And God said, well, to tell you the truth, I didn't even recognize you. <laughs> that joke is cute because the truth is God always recognizes us, doesn't he? He sees through the mask we wear and the hidden agendas that drive us. He knows your hypocrisy. And when you talk about hypocrisy, you have to be very clear on what God is calling out and what he is not. For instance, mature Christians have long noticed that sometimes we don't feel like doing what God wants us to do. Pray for others, serve others, honor the needy. Our desire doesn't match what Christ has called us to do. But that's not really what God is calling hypocrisy here. Uh, listen to this quote, uh, Kevin DeYoung explains it like this. Hypocrisy is not the gap between doing and feeling. We all have this gap between doing and feeling. That's not really hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the gap between your public persona and your private character. Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what you preach. Appearing outwardly righteous to others, by actually being full of uncleanliness and self-indulgence. That's hypocrisy. Right? See the difference? There's a gap between your public persona and your private character. How do we close that gap? I don't want to be a hypocrite. So how do I close that? Well, here's a dad exercise. Dad, let's start with you. Try going home and asking your wife or your children Tell me about the gap between how I act on Sunday or on social media and how I act in the home. Right? They might be able to identify something that you can start to work on, start to attack, start to fight against in order to make strides in the area of hypocrisy. Again, Kevin Young writes this. 
The sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. That's not hypocrisy. That's true of all of us, right? Everybody is more messed up than we seem. If you went home with other people at church, you would see someone messier than you ever dreamed. It's just the way we all are. But that's not hypocrisy. That's true for everybody. We all have a gap. The sin is using the appearance of goodness to cloak the deeds of evil. The sin is in thinking that who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God knows you to be. I'll read that again. Sin is in thinking that who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God knows you to be. God knows you to be broken. God knows you to be a sinner. A born denier of his glory who is drowning in your own self-righteousness. But get this, God doesn't run from that mess. In fact, he pursued you knowing full well your mess, your sin, all the things that you try to hide from people. God pursues you in that. And he calls you son. How can he do that? No. Jesus has bought all of your messy, sinful, wicked moments. And he has declared you righteous. And in fact, you're not quite there, but you are declared completely righteous. So God can call you son and daughter, and you can rightfully call him on Father's Day, Father. He adopts you into the family despite your own darkness. He purchases you out of the bondage of sin into the freedom to live for Christ. And what this means, when you see a hypocrisy point, part of your gap you can do three things. You can know and trust that God has seen this already and has dealt with it in Jesus and he still smiles on you despite your sin. Scroll down to the bottom of this text in 29, very last part of the chapter. It's probably the best news of the whole chapter because in verse 29 we Read. He's talking about a person. We'll get there. He's talking about a person who's a follower of Jesus in that last sentence of 29. And he said, his praise is not from man, but who praises the real believer? God. God praises you. That sounds backwards. And it can be backwards if you hear it the wrong way. Of course, we come here. And we love to sing songs and put words and praise God for his glory. He certainly deserves that. But it's a harder thought to know that God is happy with you. But Paul wants you to know it because of what Jesus has done. He is happy with you. And so when you sin, you can approach him as a good father and confess your sinfulness knowing that he's not going to smack you. Oh, you sinned against me? It's not who God is. He sings your praises because what Jesus has done for you made you a new creature. He's just not done yet. So we're all going to have sin. What Paul said is you need to come and confess it before God, before people. Here's an illustration. The rain really picked up a minute ago. Uh, I'm going to let you into the secret of the top of our building because they go up there often. <laughs> and it explains some of the brown, cool colors um, that we have on our rooftop. So, ceiling tiles. So, up on top of our roof, there are a lot of leaks. But for just about every leak, you will find a black patch, and a black patch, and a black patch, and a black patch of tar-like chemicals, right? These are times where I have gone up, or someone else here on the staff, and we've identified a leak, and we've thrown some patch down, and when I come down, guess what? I'm still not confident in it. I can stand under the spot and think, uh, it's still going to pour water eventually. Why is that? Well, it's my own patching, and I know that we use the wrong stuff. It turns out when we call the professional roofer in, he's like, this is amateur patching. It actually makes the worst roof, the, the roof worse sometimes. You should never do it this way. 
So I have no confidence in my own patches. But this week, for certain areas of the roof, I called a professional. He came in with the right compound, the right type of silicone, sprayed it over, washed it good, let it dry, and I stood under his leaf with full confidence. This is a great picture of what Jesus does for your sin. He covers it the right way. When you're trusting in your own covering, you should fully expect God to rain down on you. And then it can stop. That's what Paul is saying. But when you trust in the great sealant of Jesus, his righteousness he has put on you, if you trust in that, you can stand in the presence of your own sin and confess it. You don't have to try to put your own shiny veneer over it because you're not fooling God anyway. Let's trust together that hypocrisy is blasphemy and we lean only into the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus Christ. One final point here from the text. Dive back into it. Now we've seen that God wants to expose sanctimony in your life and hypocrisy in his people. Paul now anticipates one more objection. It's kind of complicated, so I'll explain it. Here's the objection that he anticipates from the Jewish people. When it comes to judgment, Paul, when it comes to judgment, Paul, doesn't circumcision count for something? Alright? Wait a minute. You've talked about the law, but what about circumcision? Surely that counts for something. Doesn't that set us apart as God's people on the last day? Didn't you give us circumcision? Now remember what circumcision is in the Old Testament? Circumcision was the sign and seal of God's pledge to his people. God pledged to his people your mind. Surely this counts for something on the last day. It's a reasonable objection. Paul's answer is also reasonable. Paul answers, circumcision does not save you from the wrath of God. Look at verse 25. For circumcision is of value for salvation if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It was conditional agreement, and the Jews had broken it time and time and time and time again. And yet they're trusting in it, and Paul says God will not have that. You feel the desperation here. Unless you are morally perfect, you will be judged, fellow Jews, says Paul, you'll be judged as if you were outside the covenant, like a Gentile. Now let's turn it on its head. What if a Gentile somehow kept the law? Look at verse 26. What if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law? Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, will he not be in God's family? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, that's a Gentile, but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. So Paul is inching forward here to a really harsh reality for the Jewish people. Turns out that to be a true member of God's family, it's not about any change to your body, not about having the law, but it consists in God's family only of people who have been transformed in their souls. There's a notion that, yes, God chose the Jewish people to receive his law and his covenant through circumcision, but within the Jewish people and among the Gentile, there are those who authentically trust God. They truly trust. These people you might call the true Jews. These people authentically trust God on the inside, inwardly. Verse 28. And again, this explains the whole, if the whole chapter is confusing to you, 28 and 29 really make it clear. For no one is a true Jew, a Jew who is merely one outwardly. All right? Paul is saying, you Jewish people, you need to think outside the box here. Nor is circumcision, or we might say true circumcision, outward and physical. All right? 
If you need another type of cup, says Paul, verse 29, but a true Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision, the true circumcision, is a matter of the heart. It's done by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. This climax of the whole chapter here, the big reveal, belonging to God is a matter of inner devotion and affections. It must be a holy surgery. The Holy Spirit must come and cut your heart. Your concrete heart must be softened by the Spirit. Your eyes must be opened to see the beauty of Christ. No one belongs to God by outward change. It must be an inward change. It's what's on the inside that counts. Now, how do we illustrate this? How do we get this point across? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was really helped by Brother Roger's, Brother Pastor Roger's, awesome illustration where he got his son up here and he said, God is actually holding you back from what you want to pursue because it's dangerous. That's still in the mind. It's a good illustration. So since it's Father's Day, I'm going to try my own illustration with some little ones. I'd like to call a couple of volunteers up here. Uh, okay, you can come up here. Shiloh, can you come up here? Asa? No, let me get you what I just saw. You can't see this, but this is what I just saw. Come up here. I just saw someone who told me before church, yeah, I'd like to come up on church on stage. I'll be fine with that. And then I just looked down 30 seconds ago and I saw <laughs> All right, so uh, in the youth group, last Friday night we had our first post-COVID youth group, but that's for the older kids, not the kids. They weren't there. But we played a cool game that I'd never heard of involving Doritos. Maybe you've heard of this, okay? I have some here. It is called Doritos Roulette. All right, let me explain how the game works. If this blows up, actually... New youth director Grace Bourne is to blame. <laughs> and we'll, it's not the bad father. It's crazy. Uh, it's very simple. Everything in this bag is not what it seems. Usually, if you buy Doritos, you have the blue ranch bag, you know, and then you have the purple chili bag. Well, in this bag, a bunch of chips all look the same in their outside wrappers, and all the chips look identical, but some of them are super spicy. So when you play Dorito Roulette, you grab them and you eat them, and whoever gets the super spicy one is the loser. All right? So we're going to try this right now with our volunteer. Did you volunteer for this? Yeah. All right. No one's being for Okay. We can't grab one. And I'm free. Don't eat it yet. All right. Put them up. They all look the same on the outside, but some are spicy. All right, I'm free. You're going to eat them. Don't ask what I'm not eating. <laughs> One, two, and eat. Now, let's see if anybody got a spice. Oh, what is that? It's a nibble, man. Like a whole chip. Oh, that's spicy? Okay. You got spicy? All right. You? No spicy. Okay. Now, she happens to have a super high tolerance for spicy things. So you missed the fun of this, which is the reaction. Right? Uh, she's not going to react, but she got the spicy. Good job, everyone. Very good. Very good. I miss it. Thank you. Uh, what's the point of that, you might ask? What? Back to sleep.
I'm going to read the last part of the verse here. And the Lord your God, here's what's happening in Deuteronomy 30. God is making a pledge to his people. And as he's making this pledge, he talks about the operation of the Holy Spirit. And he says this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. What does that mean? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I see a couple things here that tells us what circumcision of the heart is. The first one, the Spirit rewires your heart so that you will treasure Jesus. The Spirit rewires your heart so that you will treasure Jesus. Listen to this quote here. This is from R.C. Sproul about how circumcision works of the heart. It's not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming against their will to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and the disposition of our heart so that while we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing. More than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Christ. And we embrace Him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our heart. The heart is no longer a heart of stone. Impervious to the commands of God and the invitation to the gospel. God melts the hardness of our hearts when he makes us new creatures. When we're dead, the Holy Spirit resurrects us from spiritual death so that we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. But the reason we want to come to Christ is because God has done a work of grace in our soul. Without that work, we would never have any desire to come to Christ. That's the circumcision of the Spirit. Paul is saying we all have to desire Jesus. Not about the law of the Gentiles, the natural law, not about the law of the Jews, the Mosaic law. Not that. It's about the work of the Spirit that gives you the unction to want Jesus as your treasure. Paul writes about this elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. He describes it a little bit differently, but it's the same idea. Here he tells us Satan has a part in this. He says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus as Lord, but ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the good news. The same God who created everything and said, let there be light. Creation didn't really add anything there, right? That's God's voice. Let there be light and light be. But that same God has shown in our heart and said, let you see Jesus. And you see, that's what Paul says circumcision of the heart is. You can see this in pop culture as well. About 35 years ago, iconic 80s movie came out called The Breakfast Club. I don't recommend it, but if you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Because it's indicative, may have even started a trend. It's in every rom-com you'll ever see. What happens in that movie? Well, it's a bunch of high schoolers that have to do uh, detention. And in detention, you have the popular jock, cool guy character played by Emilio Estevez. And he meets in detention the classic uh, grungy, shy, not cool girl, right? Well, at a pivotal point in the movie, guess what happens? Uh, the girl literally goes and gets a makeover in the bathroom with one of her friends, changes her clothes, changes her hair, and she comes out back in the study hall, and there's Emilio, and he now is exposed to what you might say is her heretofore unseen beauty. She's radiant, and his jaw literally is like, what? Well, you were new. You were pretty. What the Spirit does is a non-cheesy version of that. Every time you see that movie in a teenage movie or a rom-com, think about this. God has revealed the beauties of Jesus to you. You used to think Jesus was ugly. Now you can see his true worth because the Spirit has circumcised your heart to see the greatness 
of Jesus. That's the creation of a circumcised heart. But this passage in Deuteronomy 30 says one more thing. Not just the creation of a circumcised heart, but the end game, the result, a teleological look at a circumcised heart. Read it again, verse 6, end of it. Once the Spirit works, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that, what? You may live. That's the end game. In other words, when the Spirit comes to open the eyes of your heart, it changes everything. A new person on the inside begins to treasure Jesus. And then when you find yourself in situations, you're always thinking about, how can I love Jesus here? How can I make him look good here? How can I treasure him while I'm playing sports, while I'm at work, while I'm watching TV? You're always thinking about this because you have been changed. You want to honor him. You remember him. You're inspired by him. And this type of life will lead to a life forever with Jesus. As John Piper has said, eternal life is more about a person than a place, right? Eternally, we will live with Jesus. Jesus who came to vindicate the work of God's glory by living for it with all of his might. We will live with Jesus who died to show that God's glory is worth the greatest possible sacrifice. We will live with Jesus who came to rescue us from the wrath of God against all that dishonors his glory. We will live with Jesus who did this by dying in our place and becoming for us a righteousness that we could never achieve. We will live with Jesus who came to change us into the kind of people who value the glory of God above all things. The end of a circumcised heart is life in Jesus. This is where an inwardly changed leads to an authentic, flourishing life. Again, fathers, I know there's pressure in your home to be successful. Either Christian culture pressure or worldly pressure to succeed, you must do this. He's a great athlete and a great actress, whatever. There is a lot of pressure in following financially successful. Here is true success. Jesus said, your kids can come and have abundant life in me. That abundance of life is our call as fathers. As we go this week, I pray that we all remember that our hearts have been circumcised. If yours hasn't, you can come to Jesus. The Spirit will show you His beauty, and you can follow with us Him forever. Let's pray together. God, we do pray. We pray against our own sanctimony, against our own hypocrisy, we pray for authenticity. The idea that the Spirit of God changes us for real on the inside, spices up our view of Jesus so that we'll never be the same. God, come to us this week. Come to our fathers. Take the pressure off being perfect in everything, give them a laser focus on living with a circumcised heart that's softened to the glory of God that you show us in Jesus. Help us now as we go. I pray this in Christ's name.